It is new, exciting, and a first for medical professionals. Reach MDXM on 233. You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. The management of pain has become a high priority in this country, both in the legislature and within the healthcare community itself. While pain relievers enable many individuals with chronic pain to lead productive lives, the use of opioids puts an added responsibility on the physician. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson. Today, our guest is Dr. Larry Robbins, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Rush Medical College and Director of the Robbins Headache Clinic in Northbrook, Illinois. We'll be talking about the trends in medical use and abuse of opioid analgesics. Dr. Robbins, can we begin by talking about the numbers? How many non-cancer patients are taking opioids today? Well, we're not sure exactly, but uh, it's a whole lot, uh, at least several million. We have a number of uh, pharmacologic treatments for non-malignant pain, including antidepressants, anticonvulsants, et cetera. But opioids, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, are the only thing that works for some people. And in addition to NSAIDs and the other drugs, uh, very often we do end up using the opioids. Uh, so it is quite a number of patients are dependent on them uh, who don't have cancer pain. So these numbers have gone up uh, exponentially? or I don't think we have a handle on how many millions of people are on opioids. Uh, while we do need better pain drugs and they're working on better ones, you know, we're still using the, the same uh, opioids and the same bases that were there 200 years ago. So we need ones with less side effects, with more potency, particularly less side effects. But until we get these out into the population, we're, we're still using the same opioids. Now, who should go on opioids? It used to be that they were the drug of last resort when patients didn't respond to any other uh, pain medication. Is that still true, or when do you turn to opioids? Well, they're part of a, a whole spectrum of uh, an armamentarium that we treat pain patients with, not just pharmacologically, but uh, non-pharmacologically. Uh, pharmacologic treatment may be the cornerstone of treatment of pain patients, but we try not to rely solely on the drugs. But as far as drugs, we have pain prevention medicines, particularly the antidepressants and anticonvulsants. We have muscle relaxants and NSAIDs. But the opioids do allow for a greater quality of life for many patients. But patient selection is crucial. What does a physician need to look for in terms of other medications that patients may be on? Or what about the times that patients are doctor shopping and getting multiple medications from other physicians? What complications can you avoid and what can you look for? Well, there are a number of clues uh, from the first visit with patients. If they're asking for high doses of things, if uh, we suspect that they've been an abuser. The ideal patient for opioids with chronic pain is the older patient because younger patients tend to become more tolerant more easily. The older patients, their neurons can't do the neuronal gymnastics that we need to get tolerance. So if I put a 25-year-old on OxyContin, Dollars to donuts, within a month or two, they're on twice as much of a dose. If I put a 60-year-old, very likely they're going to be on the same dose for 10 years or so. So that goes for uh, almost all the opioids. I also like, of course, uh, not uh, no drug abuse history, but if some people do have a drug abuse history, it depends on which drug. Some people have abused alcohol in the past or amphetamines. But opioids, they can leave around their house for a year and not use it, and they would never think of abusing them. 
But the more remote history of drug abuse is better. We don't want a recent uh, abuse history. If they've done well on short-acting opioids, they did well on a low dose of hydrocodone or codeine, uh, they're an ideal candidate sometimes for long-acting ones if they do need them. And I like people who are active copers versus passive copers. You know, interestingly enough, with chronic pain patients, pain itself does not predict disability very well. It's uh, catastrophizing and coping skills. So the passive coper, the ultimate passive coper, comes in and says, Dr. Robbins, Dr. Robbins, just give me these pills. I want pain medicine. And when you get my pain better, I'll get out of the house. The active coper is doing quite a number of things to cope with their pain outside of medicine, although they're using medicine. We look for people with a good support system and, of course, less psychiatric illness, less anxiety, depression, particularly access to the personality disorders. We don't want to push the opioids too much. They tend to have a, a higher risk of abusing them. Now, we know that kids are abusing prescription medicines even more in their teenage years and in the high schools. Should this make the primary care doctor have some reluctance to prescribe them for his patients who really need them? Well, we try to warn parents to lock up or hide their medicines. Teenagers do uh, shop for the medicines in the parents' medicine cabinet. They either sell them to their friends or they give them away. So certain medicines, particularly hydrocodone, Vicodin, have been abused greatly, and it's an increasing problem. It's now one of the major drug problems in the country. Uh, we are careful, but we don't want to punish parents who have chronic pain because they have teenagers. If you just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Shira Johnson, and we're talking to Dr. Larry Robbins about opioids, the problems, and the pitfalls. Dr. Robbins, tell me a little more about forming a contract with your patients who are taking opioids, and how does a physician utilize this best in his practice for his patients who are taking prescription pain meds? Well, I think that patients on opioids, whether they're short-acting, even if they're on two codings a day or hydrocodone, Vicodin, uh, not necessarily just the long-acting opioids such as methadone or OxyContin, should have some sort of agreement or contract. There's a debate, should we call it a contract? Uh, because if we call it a contract, it can backfire on us legally. Say we have in there that we're supposed to not give it if patients uh, call in early for refills. Well, invariably, once in a year, somebody calls in early for refills. If we give it then, are we violating the contract at our end? So I like to call it an agreement. Uh, but some sort of agreement is very helpful. Or in lieu of that, having patients sign in the chart, something like that, or write a letter to the doctor. But in the contract, usually we have certain things such as only one doctor will prescribe the medicines or addicting medicines. They won't sell the drug. They'll only use one pharmacy. They can be subjected to uh, random urine testing. There are some sample contracts. The American Academy of Pain Management and American Pain Society on their websites have uh, sample pain contracts. So some sort of agreement, I think, helps uh, explaining the nature, why we're using addicting medicine in this patient. Let's talk about long-term versus short-term use and what factors go into determining that kind of use. Well, there's long-term chronic opioid use, and we have two types. We have short-acting opioids and the long-acting. In my experience for chronic pain patients, I've looked at 600 patients long-term now, and I think that about 20% do well on the long-acting opioids long-term, where they don't overuse them, where they keep working, where they don't become severely tolerant. But for those 20%, their quality of life is uh, much greater. Short-term, of course, acute pain, we don't worry as much, although some patients do overuse things. 
You know, addiction has been very well categorized in the, in the chronic pain patients. It is about 10 to 13% of pain patients will show addictive behaviors, which is different than being dependent. Addiction, we, we look at as uh, pervasive uh, behaviors, such as calling the clinic constantly for early refills, calling with all the stories that we've all heard, such as the dog ate the furanol with coating. There's a lot of euphoric dogs running around the United States. And it's different than dependence or just needing some. We become dependent on everything. And uh, if they stay on a steady level, that's not addiction. And a lot of people do confuse dependence with addiction. At what point do you refer out to a pain center or a pain specialist if you're a primary care doctor? What are some signals that tell you you may need additional advice in managing this patient? I think if patients are a moderate to severe pain patient, it really does take a village to raise a severe pain patient. We can't go it alone always just with drugs. We need to get physical therapy, biofeedback, sometimes psychotherapy involved. So referring to uh, a pain treatment center or at least to other people, you don't necessarily need a pain treatment center. The uh, family doc or internist can really very well handle and sometimes they're the best person to uh, handle the pain medicines and that patient because they know the person and their family the best. But they can refer individually then to therapy find a good biofeedback person around, physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think getting other people involved in helping the patient uh, can be beneficial. What's new on the horizon? What can you tell us that maybe we haven't heard of as primary care doctors? When the morphine pain pumps came out and the patients could give their own medication and monitor their own dosages, that was a break front. Um, what else is happening on the horizon for pain management? We really need new mechanisms of action. We need better opioids. We need uh, maybe the cannabinoid receptors that are like THC but without the side effects may work for pain and for addiction. Maybe other mechanisms that work on swelling or inflammation in the nerves that cut down on central and peripheral sensitization or work on CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, is uh, very crucial in central and peripheral sensitization. So drugs that work on that are being developed but uh, we've been close. Uh, substance P inhibitors, et cetera, et cetera, haven't quite worked out for pain, but I think that they're working on them. And then outside of drugs, uh, magnets, not little magnets that are sold, but the big magnets may work for headaches and for depression. Uh, I think the implantable pumps and the pumps, uh, the nerve stimulators behind the head, uh, we may have gone almost as far as we could go, and I'm looking to other areas, really, as far as what's new. Dr. Robbins, what's important to document when you're seeing patients in your office regularly who are on these high-dose pain opioids? Well, as far as uh, legally and for departments of regulation, but also medically, I think it's important to document their pain level, whether you use a 0 to 10 scale or 1 to 100, uh, functioning. Are they functioning better? We always want people to function better on opioids. If they're not functioning better, maybe we should take them off. Moods, so I do pain functioning moods. Are they depressed, anxious, adverse events? Have they had side effects? And overuse or abuse, have they been overusing these? I, I use a lot of stamps, or you could do it electronically. If you still have paper charts like me, I'm a dinosaur, I'll have stamps and I'll have pain functioning moods, overuse, uh, adverse events, and then a brief opioid physical exam, which is are they slurring? Are their pupils pinpoint? and their gait. Are they falling off to one side? Which just documents for anybody that audits the chart or looks that you're, you're asking the appropriate questions and you're not just handing out opioids. 
Should the primary care doctor ever be afraid of the FDA coming in or the DEA and conducting an audit of his books if he's prescribing high-dose opioids? Uh, in general, no. The amount of audits, uh, they're, they're looking for clinics where they're just handing out drugs and just selling them, and it's basically just using their medical license fraudulently. But that's very rare. The general doctor doesn't have that much to uh, be afraid of, I think, with if they're appropriately using pain patients. The myth is that uh, they're out to get us. The number of doctors audited where people come in from the DEA every year is incredibly tiny. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Larry Robbins, for being with us today to talk about opioid use. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. You are listening to the first channel for medical professionals, ReachMDXM on 233.